and welcome to 13, the Colgate University podcast that asks questions of folks connected to the university. I am your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast Associate Professor of English, C.J. Hauser. Hauser teaches creative writing and literature at Colgate and is a celebrated author with works featured in the pages of The Atlantic, Tin House, The Paris Review, Esquire, Bon Appetit, The New York Times, and many, many more. Her first full-length work of nonfiction, The Crane Wife, a memoir in essays, was recently released from Doubleday in the U.S. and Viking in the U.K. Hauser's novel, Family of Origin, was published by Doubleday in 2019, and the novel The From Aways was published by William Morrow in 2014. Hauser earned her bachelor's degree from Georgetown University, an MFA from Brooklyn College, and a PhD from Florida State University. Professor Hauser, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be on the show. Oh, I'm so excited <laughs> to have you here. Um, I always like to start from the top and uh, I'd like to learn a little bit about your journey to Colgate. Can you tell me about your path here? Yeah, um, I was a Brooklyn writer person who was teaching at a lot of different schools um, to a lot of different kinds of students. And I was sort of reluctant to get a PhD. I sort of liked the work of teaching. I liked the work of writing. Um, and I wasn't ready to go back to school, but I, I decided I wanted to make an earnest run of it, and I really wanted to find a teaching home that would feel like a real community, which the places I was adjuncting did not. Um, so yeah, I went kicking and screaming to get my PhD <laughs> in Florida, and um, the first job that came through was this one, and I, I left the first interview saying, I'm in love with them, they'll never call me back, but they did, and it's really become... It's become home, and I'm so grateful for that. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I always ask uh, English professors in particular, I should probably apologize to every English professor that comes onto the podcast, but um, I'm always curious, what authors inspire you, I guess, what led you down the path of being a writer, and were there any particular works that were like really big influences in your life? Yeah, I think I grew up reading a lot of things that my my folks gave me, so I read a lot of uh, Saul Bellow and Carson McCullers, and they were sort of early, I don't know, classics, I suppose, that I, I imprinted on because those characters were always searching and wanting, and they were really messy inside and sort of emo before I knew what that was. And I don't know, they didn't want their lives to look like everyone else's. And I found that really reassuring as like a 12 year old. Um, but I think as I kept reading more widely, it was the moments when I saw voices that sounded like my actual human voice as a person, not a writer, on the page that was really exciting for me. Um, there's a book by Amanda Davis called Wonder When You'll Miss Me, and that was the first time I heard a voice on the page that was really femme, and it was silly, and it was smart. Um, it's a weird book, and there's a girl who runs away to join the circus. Uh, someone gets a tattoo of chickens. And I just, all of that seemed like not dignified enough to be written about. And so I'd been writing bad knockoff Raymond Carver for years. And then I was like, oh, I can sound like me. Like, mm -hmm. that's actually the thing that maybe I should be striving for. And I think that was a really big moment for me. Mm, that's really cool. The title essay from The Crane Wife uh, was featured in the Paris Review and went completely viral on Twitter with more than a million people reading it. 
Was this your first brush with kind of going viral online? And what was that experience like? Oh, yeah. I'm like a social media recluse. Like, I had Twitter just to lurk and sometimes read essays that everyone else in the writing community thought were important, and that was about it. Um, I have an Instagram that is run by my dog, and that's all it is. It's just pictures of my dog. Um, So (laughs) I don't know. I, like – I wasn't even the one to tweet the essay. Um, It was more like people in my life started screaming, texting me, being like, do you know what's happening right now? Uh, So it was new for sure. It was exciting. Um, It was terrifying. I was thrilled that so many people were reading it because writers want readers. But um, also the essay is about a pretty low time in my life. And the fact that the thing in my life I have written that the most people responded to was the worst time of my life, perhaps. Um, That was a strange way to find readers. Um, But I'm grateful for them, and I hope they're all doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that essay ultimately led to your appearance on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Um, You talk a little bit, uh, not just about that experience, but for listeners who may not have seen that episode, um, a little bit about writing totems. Yeah, my chickens. Um, It's a totally silly thing that I do with my students. I believe in rituals. Like I've always, on the last day of class when we say goodbye, the the idea, especially in a creative writing workshop where you've really been vulnerable with each other and shared work and built community if it's gone right, like to be like, okay, last day of class, here's your assignment, goodbye. Like that just felt wrong to me. And so I wanted to sort of have some sort of closing, I don't know, silliness. And so... Um, I call my students my chickens. It's a gender-neutral thing. Y'all and chickens are about what I've got. Um, And I just looked online, and I found they're actually meant for playing dominoes, a game of dominoes uh, style called Chicken Foot. And they're just these little plastic chickens, and so I give them to them on the last day, and I have a tiny spiel, which is about how... If they are never going to write again, which is possible, maybe they're just experimenting in college. Like, I want them to remember that they are creative and they made a thing once and that's very brave and that they are creative people and they're never allowed to say they're not again. And, like, if there are people who want to make more space for creative stuff in their life, it's supposed to be, like, you don't need fancy stuff. You don't need a fancy moleskin. You don't need a fancy desk. You don't need a book deal. You don't need any of that. You just need to like carve out space and say, this is this is the time where I do the creative thing that I like to do. And the chicken is supposed to like go on their desk to remind them of that, even if that desk is like in the back of a break room somewhere. Yeah. I took away a lot from that too. I actually have a little pewter whale that I use. No way. Yes. And I started after I mean, I always had the whale on my desk, but I started carrying it with me and I was like, this is gonna help. And it sure does. I love that. Yes, it's awesome. Um, you know, the in the Crane Wife, the the memoir, it um, it's your first full-length nonfiction work. Um, curious what drew you to memoir. Was it like this natural progression? Do you see yourself now as like a memoir person or is it a uh, one-off that you were just experimenting? Or I'm curious as to um, that. Yeah, I had no desire to write nonfiction. I was um, – I like making things up. <laughs> I like um... – living in imaginary worlds, and I had only sort of briefly fallen into writing one or two essays about the research I had done for my last novel, which is how The Crane Wife, the title essay, came about. And then I think the response to the essay 
was both a thing that made me want to write more and never want to write nonfiction again. On the one hand, I was like, I don't want to do this just because people are screaming on the internet. That's not an authentic way to make art, like to please people. And I didn't want to do that. But I had so many conversations with people who were like, hey, like I read this and then I sent it to my sister and then we sent it to our other friend and we sent it to our other friend and then we like talked about our needs and our relationships and our histories and we talked about a lot of things we'd never talked about before. Mm. And that to me, I was like, oh, I want to do that again. I want to I want to think about the things that maybe if you open the door for people to talk about them by doing it yourself, good things can happen or hard things, whatever it is. But I that was thing I was really interested in. Um, and now I'm, I'm addicted to the form. I love it. I'm still a novelist. I have a novel that I'm working on, but, um, there are definitely more essays in the pipeline. I've been researching these weird eco dwellings in the Taos desert called earth ships. And I have all sorts of stuff. I definitely want to explore more. Some of your works, uh, include, I'll say not so flattering details about past relationships. Um, I guess since gaining prominence as an author, have you had a partner that's ever wanted you to sign an NDA or is worried that they might be a subject of your next essay? No. In fact, the opposite has happened. I should say, too, a lot of the essays include very non-flattering details about me as a partner sure. and oh, me absolutely. as a person. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think uh, the opposite thing has happened where I've aggressively told people I've started seeing or dating, like, I'm not, not going to write about you. And if I do, I will let you know and I'll make you read it and you'll tell me if it's okay or not. Um, and the result is that people have been upset that I'm not writing about them. And they're like, what do I need to do to be like worthwhile to write about? And I'm like, what? I, I, I'm being nice here. Like, you don't want me to write. Trust me. But it turns out that people are more worried about not making it into the the official histories than they are being left off. Wow. Yeah. And what about uh, past relationships? Have you heard, like, uh, what, do, what do they think about being in there? Do you know? I have no idea. And um, the rule that I had when I wrote the book was that anyone who is still in my life, um, I reach out to them. I ask them if they wanted to read things. And anyone who is no longer in my life, um, I did not share it with them. But... Everyone in the book comes off a lot better on the page than they would have in real life. (laughs) And I think I always tried to make myself the butt of the joke. I always tried to take responsibility anytime I could, even if it was a stretch. And my editor told me I was doing it too much. And um, yeah, those were the ethics that I decided were going to be my ethics for the project. I also changed the names of anyone who didn't read something ahead of time. Um, it's a sticky wicket. It's definitely yeah. a sticky wicket, but I think it was important to me to only tell the parts of those, especially those relationship stories, um, that were parts of my life that I felt like I couldn't tell without those people because we don't live in a vacuum and anything that was about their lives or our lives together that I didn't need in order to tell the truth of myself, I left it off the page. Interesting. Do you... I'm I'm curious about this too. Do you consider yourself as someone who suffers from hypergraphia? That is the compulsion to write. Do you find yourself having to write? No, I wish. (laughs) No, not at all. I think that it's almost like running for me or exercise of any sort where it's like, I know I feel a lot better when I do it. Um, But oftentimes it's hard to give it time and space when there are so many other pressing things and there's a student who wants to talk about what they're going to do when they graduate and there's a class that needs prepared and there's, I don't know, there are a million things that always seem more pressing. 
Um, so it's a thing that makes me happy. It's a thing that makes me me. Um, and I, but I still have to fight to carve out the time. It's like kale. Yeah, I love kale. Actually, <laughs> I probably eat more kale than I write pages. Um, I, I guess I, I, I'll, I'll switch the question order up here since we ended on kale. Uh, I think you wrote probably the most compelling Bon Appetit piece I've ever read about risotto. Uh, how did how did that come about, and how did you get the idea to uh, use rota, risotto as kind of your foil? Yeah, I um, they invited me to write something for that column uh, all on the table, which is about sort of moments of communion relationships, dynamics that involve food. Um, and my grandmother's cookbook marginalia has always been fascinating to me. Like I loved, I loved it when, when she was alive too. I would call her up and I'd be like, Grammy, what does this even mean? And she'd be like, oh yeah, you've got to do this thing with the lemons. They're preserved and if you put them right in, they'll be too salty. And I'll be like, oh, oh you could have left a clearer note, but like I'll add it to this now. But um, like we're talking to each other in the margins of those cookbooks and I love that so much and now that she's gone when I'm like making a recipe and I see her handwriting there in the notes that say that my grandfather thought it was too spicy um, because he was a weenie about that stuff and she loved things that were flaming hot like that brings me so much joy so I'm a person who does that too and I often make people write in the margins Um, but because I have uh, a track record of being very bad at romance that means that there are a lot of X's in the pages of my cookbooks, but I still want to make recipes, and that risotto recipe is one I've made a lot, and so I wanted to write about what it felt like to see the whole past of times I'd cooked that meal there, um, and I'd been sort of focused on the fact that there were X's, but there are all of these beautiful communal dinners that I've cooked that are there too, like Easter for 20 writers in Tallahassee. Um, and I don't know, friends coming over on a snowy day and sort of us getting locked into the house by the blizzard and making it. And so it was cool to acknowledge all the different parts of life that were in the margins of that one recipe. I feel like all home cooks generally have like the one go-to cookbook that they use all the time. What, what's yours? That one is actually, it's it's the perfect Contessa. I can't help it. Oh, I really love Ina Garten. I'm like very creeped out by the way she's always cooking for Jeffrey. And I'm like, <laughs> could you just cook something for anyone else just one time, Ina Garten? But like, I love her recipes so much. I love her... I don't know. She like loves vegetables and fresh produce, but she also loves a whole stick of butter. And that's about where I'm at. She's very calming to watch too, I feel like. She is. She has a very like even keel that you don't see with a lot of television chefs. Yeah. Um, you know, I noticed on your website that you have contact information for a film agent. And it makes me wonder what film based on a book stands out as your favorite and what works of your own do you think would lend themselves best to the silver screen? And one more question. I realize I'm bundling questions here. Um, who should play you in in, in the story? <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, in terms of adaptations, um, Ted Chiang's story of my life became the movie Arrival, and it's one of my favorite movies. Um, I love that novella so much, and I think that the movie really found a way to expand the ideas in it, of it and the universe like even bigger. Um, and so I just – I love it. I can't recommend it enough. Um there are things – I'm not allowed to talk about it, but there are things brewing. I figured as much. <laughs> there are things brewing. Someday I'll get to talk about them. Yeah, so someday there will be a person potentially who will actually play me. But I think 
short of that, I've, I love Jenny Slate so much. This is aspirational, right? Like anytime yeah, yeah. you pick someone who is a famous actress to play you, it's like, well, who do you think you are? But Jenny Slate is so strange and like has so many registers of being like funny and weird and sweet. And I really love her writing. She has a book called um, Little Weirds that's just such a delight. Um, Marcel the Shell is a favorite of mine. The new movie just came out. I'm screening it for students very soon. But um, I don't know. She's a person who I would be just thrilled and delighted. Very nice. So I wanted to ask a question. You are a bit of a local celebrity in that I understand <laughs> one of the, uh, uh, I guess, bars? It's not really a bar. Martha's on Madison in downtown Hamilton, which is a very cute little bar, has named two cocktails after you, right? Is that true? <laughs> yeah, so it's part of the Living Writers series. Um, Professor Bryce and I got to go and we invented with Brittany and Brandon and Maggie uh, a cocktail for each of the Living Writers books. And so because... I am alive and a writer. Um, I got to like pick which mine were. So if you order a crane wife at mom's, you will receive a mezcal Negroni that Brandon like tinkered with and it's very delicious. But they were teasing me because normally when I come in, what I actually order is sort of a shamefully dirty and vermouthy uh, gin martini. So they said that if someone showed up and asked for the Moriarty, which is my dog, you would actually get my standard order. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, We've made it to question 13. Oh, wow. Yeah. I understand you're a big X-Files fan, <laughs> according to Time Magazine. Um, is that true? Oh, yeah. And that you've maybe watched the series a few times? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I thought for question 13, we always try to do something a little fun. Yeah. I thought I'd do a lightning round of uh, X-File trivia. Oh, my God. I'm so excited for okay. this. Awesome. All right. You ready? I'm just going to rattle them out. There's not a ton of them, but there's some. All right. So we'll start with the first one. Where did Fox Mulder go to college? Is it Georgetown? Oxford. Oxford. Yes. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> In addition to acting on the show, David Duchovny was also credited as what? An episode writer? He was a writer. That's right. What was Scully's original profession? What was Scully's original profession? Was she a doctor? Yep. Scully's abduction in season two was cover for what real-life event? Oh, what were they doing? It was on that crazy monorail in the sky. <laughs> they were definitely covering up the remains of, like, an alien ship, right? What were they no, doing? no. Her, what was the – it was actually cover for something outside of the show. Oh, see, I don't know anything about the real world. I just know about the monsters, Daniel. <laughs> Maternity leave. That was Oh wait, really? Yep. Mm -hmm. But that's super disturbing because that whole episode has a lot to do with her like w spoilers for the X-Files years later, but like <laughs> she's like uh she has an alien baby because of that. It had to be pretty weird. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Do you know the name of the only X-Files spin-off? Yes, The Lone Gunman and I own it on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> uh and uh, what was Chris Carter's profession before creating the X-Files? Oh, I don't know. He was a writer for Surfing Magazine. Surfing Magazine? For like 15 years. Okay, I'm writing a thing about surfing right now, so now this just means it's another excuse to write about Chris Carter. Um, it turns out I don't know anything about how the X-Files was made, but like, do you want to know the name of Scully's dog? Because it's Queequeg. Like, do you want to know about the fluke man? The like, I'm, Dick. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. <laughs> and, you father... have, and your dog is named Moriarty? Yeah, Moriarty. Oh, very cool. <laughs> All right, final question. 
what's your favorite X-Files episode? Yeah, there's this one um, where there's like a monster and he's dancing and he keeps running around through these houses that are being tented for um, theoretically for like pesticides. But instead, inside the tent, there's like a weird sleeping gas and everyone's sort of half knocked out. And this guy just comes in and he dances with them to like old music like Perry Como and sometimes Elvis. And like at the end, everyone dances with him. It's like... So weird. It's so sweet. It's so disturbing if you think about it too hard. But like when you watch it, it's a real feel good episode. All right. And I understand you have a uh, selection from The Crane Wife to read. Yeah, I'm going to read part of an essay that's called Mulder, It's Me. Awesome. Quick editor's note, and this is a first for the podcast, uh, listener discretion is advised. Um, Professor Hauser's reading includes some explicit language um, and some sexual situations. So I just wanted to share that with folks in case there are any um, young ears uh, listening. I am never again dating anyone who dislikes any of these three things. I had written the three things which had come to me like a unified field theory of shitty men on a cocktail napkin. And the napkin said, one, big dogs, two, the sea, three, Muppets. I flapped the cocktail napkin at my friend who was laughing so hard she was blotting her eyes. I was drunk, but I wasn't unserious. To dislike any of these things is sociopathic, I said, studying my napkin. Something is broken, I said, in a person who doesn't like these things. I'm not wild about the Muppets, my friend said. But do you hate them, I said. Do you wish them ill? I do not wish the Muppets ill. From now on, this is the rule. A Muppet-oriented relationship theory is potentially more sociopathic than not liking Kermit the Frog, but I was looking for answers, trying to understand what had gone wrong in the past. Back then, I was in the autopsy business dissecting my failed relationships in search of answers. From every relationship post-mortem came new rules about what I should and should not do in the next one. My autopsy rules multiplied over time until there were so many I could hardly keep track of them, but I kept doing it because maybe if I investigated my own failures closely enough, I could pretend that love, that life, was an endeavor a person could undertake with only a reasonable amount of risk. In short, I was trying to science the shit out of my love life. And of all my theories, metrics, and madnesses, none messed me up more than my experiences in Scully Mulderism. Here's the Mulder-Scully dynamic. Mulder believes in everything, and Scully believes in nothing. Or rather, Mulder is all feeling and instinct and trauma legacy, and Scully is all facts and reasoning and medical degree with a pinch of Catholicism. Mulder says it's aliens, a flying saucer, and Scully says there have been 12 known incidents of swamp gas mistaken for aliens in this town alone. Mulder has a mattress and a fish tank of mostly dead fish in apartment number 42, The Meaning of Life, and Scully lives in a well-lit apartment with a white couch, like a competent adult woman with mixed feelings about having no children. And they want a bone, and they do bone, and I could write you a dissertation about the tension and the boning, and the thesis of that dissertation would be that when Mulder calls Scully, he just says, Scully, it's me. And when Scully calls Mulder, she just says, Mulder, it's me. And if that isn't peak everything, I don't know what is. But that's besides the point. The point is that Scully is science and Mulder is blind belief. Scully is evidence required, and Mulder is anecdotes from the early internet. 
Mulder is the one who knows there's a monster living in the lake, and Scully is the one who says there must be a plausible explanation for all this moments before her Pomeranian gets eaten by said monster. Mulder is the one who makes things happen, and Scully is the one who gets things done, and if you're confused about the difference, you should take a good hard look at yourself. Mulder is the one who shouts, I've gotta go, without explaining his hunches, and Scully is the one left behind, weighing the stomach contents of dead teenagers she refuses to accept were killed by vampires. Because Scully is the one who does the autopsies. And that was 13. Thank you, <laughs> Professor Hauser, for coming on the program. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Um, for those interested in reading more of Professor Hauser's work, uh, there is an excerpt from The Crane Wife in the autumn issue of Colgate Magazine. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like to ask, feel free to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.